Have you ever seen something in a theater that you just couldn't explain? Or have you ever thought about if dying really ain't that bad? And do you spend sleepless nights wondering exactly what happened to Natalie Wood that night on the boat? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then it's time for you to exit stage death. Exit Stage Death is the chilling true stories behind your favorite Broadway shows, releasing bi-weekly on Tuesday starting May 24th. So if you want to find out which Broadway house is the most haunted, talk about what killed our favorite Broadway flops, and learn about the murderous path of Mama Rose that took Gypsy Rose Lee to stardom, it's time for Places, actors. Thank Thank you, you Places. places. It's time to exit stage death. Welcome back, serial killers, to another deep dive into the files of Saturday Morning Confidential. Today is an exceptionally exciting one because we are talking about something that arguably coded my entire personality for a good portion of my life. We are talking about the Animorphs. And there is someone who I knew I had to have on from many of the certain POV shows and the Incredible Minds at Yerk podcast. I have Alex Lavelle. Alex, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Uh, So if anyone for some reason doesn't know who you are, just Tell everyone who you are at home and how you came to find the Animorphs as young Alex. Who am I at home? Um, It involves a lot of pajamas and comic (laughs) books because I work from home. No, no, I was saying tell everyone at home who you are. So everyone listening. (laughs) Oh, that's more helpful. I was like, wow, that's that's a level of familiarity. I'm not normally uh, normally up for that's that's a vogue that's that's a vogue hundred question question. We're not getting there today. (laughs) Okay, I I was was talking about anamorphs or ruse. Um, No, no, I. Ooh. Uh, I am clearly a very serious person. Uh, by day, I do project management, stage management, theatrical design, occasionally some direction. I've podcasted about comics, about Animorphs, for a while about Veronica Mars. I'm editing what I will shorthand as a mostly queer cast, uh, Once Upon a, or sorry, Monster of the Week podcast called mm-hmm. Once Upon a Monster of the Week. Uh-huh. Um, that is a bunch of people who are much funnier than me giving me just a lot of material to work with when I edit. Um, I'm bad at consuming media 90% of the time. I did read all of Manamorphs basically as they came out. Hey, I remembered what the second question was. <laughs> uh, I discovered Animorphs at a Scholastic Book Fair in the fourth grade. I believe that three of them had come out at that point i remember buying number five from the kmart book section um and from then on i either acquired them through like scholastic monthly Mm -hmm. orders or eventually my grandmother up in ohio who was an art person in a way that most of my family and that none of her children were and kind of like connected with me over that decided she would buy one every month and send it down to me so i have some randomly with like inscriptions from her in the in the front page and i cannot think of a book series that on paper is less her style although overthrowing oppressive assholes do we curse on this podcast oh yes as much okay. as you want yes cool. i forget which shows on the network do and which ones don't uh uh i feel like she would have enjoyed a book series about overthrowing 
oppressive assholes and fighting back uh was she at the kent state riot yes was she one of the rioters yes um maybe the sci-fi would be a little you know not her thing but beyond that i I think she did dug it um read them all as they came out watched the tv show as it came out until nickelodeon started moving the time slot to a point where no one could keep track of it um didn't revisit it again until a few years ago some friends said you know we could start a podcast about animorphs and then i reread all of them and i remember like 40 percent of it now yeah well i i believe that's also when i found minds at york was i put on the network on like we have a the discord and then we have the i was like why has no one started this yet and everybody was like yo alex and meg have one and i went oh well now i have to listen through every episode which i have done now uh, (laughs) over the last two years i think but I, much like you, I think I might must have found it a month after you did, because uh, I remember s- the Scholastic Book Fair. Now, well, we can go through the semantics now of whether, what, was it classist, was it all these things, but you had to be there because it was the thing. Like, And it was still a thing where even five or six bucks could get you really far and get you at least one book. Yeah. Or get you or get you that Super Mario Brothers uh book book cover, paper book cover, or that Lamborghini poster that everybody wanted, even though nobody liked cars. <laughs> <laughs> I remember walking in and the cover of Cassie morphing into the dolphin just smacked me in the face. Because I, you know, as kids, you're either a dinosaur kid, you're a horse girl. I was an aquatics child. I loved dolphins. Um as an adult, I respect and fear them knowing that they are the assholes that they are now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and I bought that book and read that book first and then realized that it was a book four. And because that's the one where they're underwater for some of it. And it's it's a quite it's strange. I believe that's the one where they find Axe, I believe. That's right. Uh, and so I was confused. Um, but oddly, a weird place to cut into the series because that was where it started to kind of meld and she was figuring out what she was doing. Yeah. So like then, of course, I went back and read them and then moved forward. And then it was either the book the, every month with that scholastic book order or bless my mother taking me to the borders in my town because it was one of those things we weren't well off at growing up, but they always encouraged reading and these books, I think, were $5.99, $4.99, something ridiculous like that. I think they were $3.99. They... Yeah. And so, I, yeah, it was like incredible. I mean, reach under my desk and pick up. That's not an Animorph. That's a parody of an Animorph. That's an Animorph. Nope. What was that Hang one on. of the Veggie Morphs? Eventually, I'll get past the parodies. Yes, I've got Veggie Morphs, Humanomorphs, Animorphs. There we go. If it morphs, I got it. Um... Four ninety nine US. Yeah, they yeah. may have started off three ninety nine and gone up. I think up they did. Yeah. Point. Well, and then yeah. you had the bigger ones or the Chronicle books that would mm-hmm. be released hardcover that were. But even those, I think the Hork Bajar Chronicles when they came out were like ten bucks for that hardcover. Yeah. So you know it was one of those, and it just kind of stuck. I, like it stuck hard because I think that had to have been seventh grade maybe for me, and or eighth grade, and then went. Oh, I think it lasted through till. 10th or 11th grade for me like it, it went pretty far and of yeah. course in that time it was also weird because i was reading animorphs but also like his dark materials because it was like <laughs> as the amber spyglass was releasing like it had been so long and that book was finally coming out but yeah it imprinted in me in such a way because 
I always was drawn to stories of others. Like I wasn't allowed to have X-Men as a kid because mutants were unchristian. Uh, but of course, as soon as I could, X-Men just wove itself right into me. And so like- Also, as a Nightcrawler fan, I am offended. Uh, listen, <laughs> I know. I Listen, I know. And it's one of those things now that like- I, I would die for the X-Men. Like it's truly, it's one of those that like, if I had to preserve one side of Marvel and only that it would just be the X universe. Just be like, just, I love the X-Men. My yeah. favorite Marvel characters, Dazzler, who is incredible. So like, you know, it's just one, one of those things that it just, this series. And it's one that I always, if someone, if I'm in a group of, of adults and someone will like make an offhanded remark about like, I only want to be friends with uh, people who had every issue of Animorphs growing up. And I was like, bitch, we're about to be great friends then. Because <laughs> of course the worst thing I ever did was give away the tub of all of these books to then like four years later immediately regret it and then was scouring New York City to rebuy yeah. all of them because uh, it was before the republishing was happening. Uh, yeah, so it's just, what were some things that drew like your younger self to this? Like, Because, you know, that's the thing with these classic book fairs. We would kind of judge books by their cover and this was back when like art and book covers were really kind of blossoming and growing because they really sold it without you even reading what the, the, the dust cover would be. Yeah. I, I have always been a reader who has relied upon the advice of trusted librarians. Mm -hmm. um, that was always my, my life hack, right. For finding good books was mm -hmm. I would get done reading one and I'd go to the librarian and be like, okay, what you got for me now? And I don't know what about me screams this is a child or then screamed this is a child who doesn't want horror but wants existential dread. But that was very much like what always led librarians to hand me books. Mm -hmm. If memory serves like it was the the every two weeks in English there was or maybe every week in English like there was the day we went to the library and we had guided activities with the librarians and that was when we went to the book fair mm -hmm. the librarian like took us and recommended things to us and like helped us pick out things we would like so it had to have been my librarian putting the book in my hands um and that whole like liking existential dread thing apparently was a brand because like the next librarian I had our schools were like K through two, three and four, then five and six and seven and eight. And then the high school. Oh, so like, okay. there were like six school changes over the course of 13 years. Oh, God. Um, I loved it. I dug it. I thought it was great. I don't understand how people sit in the same building for five, six years at a time. Mm -hmm. Um, the next one had to be like all these William Slater books that are like the most mm -hmm. fever dream nightmare. It's five kids stuck in a house. That's all stairs or, Hey, you had this dream about your doppelganger and then you saw him in real life. And Oh, all of reality is a lie. And it's all a percep It's all perception and a dream that like, no, I don't know. I don't ask me to read philosophy. Apparently just give me YA lit. That is, brooded in all of that um so of course aliens and kids who could turn into animals fighting evil 
evil aliens who overtook everything about you like of course that was gonna be my jam when i was like 10 years old and of course. still in my 30s um like clearly that is that was everything about my my brand yeah, it's it's for someone who ran away from scary things and like didn't get into horror until recently. Revisiting some of this, this it's like existential dread. It is like invasion of the body snatchers, and especially in the later books, pure body horror. Like, I I, I specifically one of the books that stuck with me the longest is the one where Rachel loses her memory and is the bear, uh-huh. and literally has like a paw chopped off and her ear is like she's consumed by fire and it's all of these things and then only barely remembers to morph back into who she was and it's like that still lives with me to this day and i go what would happen like because that was just after like the the conservative mother boycott of disney when gay day started i was like how did this book series make it like how how did this series I mean, make it? Here's the thing. You look at you look at a cover, mm-hmm. and granted, this is an exceptionally multicolored yeah. example. But back to your dolphin example, even like these covers have some Lisa Frank vibes. These covers do. Mm-hmm. do not do not tip their hand as to the actual just existential horror and like you talk about the the Rachel with Amnesia book. That's, I think, Megamorphs 1, mm-hmm. which was like a year in, maybe. Mm-hmm. The Megamorphs books, if you're not familiar, they're like the summer blockbuster, almost like popcorn mm-hmm. movie. They're not always as deep as some of the regular books could be, but they're fun and they're big and <laughs> usually involve some amount of time travel. Like the one where you they go back in time. They see dinosaurs. Multiple children are digested in the stomach Mm -hmm. of a Tyrannosaurus Rex and have to figure out how to literally murder their way out of it before they can be dissolved by stomach acid. Mm -hmm. These Mm -hmm. Mm 12-year-olds. Listen, I live for that book because I was a dinosaur kid too. Me too. Ooh, we. And, you know, because there is that caveat that it's also like that thing with Beast Boy too a lot of the time is it's like, oh, I can, maybe it's Beast Boy or I forget who it is. But it's like, oh, I can become anything that I've seen, like that I physically seen. And so for them, you know, I'm... For anyone who has been under a rock for the last 20 years, 25 years, the Animorphs is a series by J. Uh, uh, I was going to say J. You're going to say the bad name. Yeah. Uh, K.A. Applegate, uh, who is a gem and a legend. Well, about... and can we, can we, little bit of revisionist history here? Mm-hmm. In the, so they're currently doing graphic novel adaptations. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they have started crediting in those as well. The Ghost Her right. Well, the Ghost Rider, we'll talk about the Ghost Riders, but she actually never wrote these books alone. She always wrote them with her husband, Michael Grant. Mm -hmm. And they've started crediting these as K.A. Applegate, Michael Grant, and Chris Grine, who's the adapter and artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So K.A. Applegate and Michael Grant. Let's yeah, let's name him. Abso- too. Absolutely. Well, and it's so it's about five kids and then their alien friend who they meet a couple books in uh, who acquires a technology by a uh, race called the Andalites, who are the ultimate vegans. Uh, 
if you will, kind of, it's a, it's a joke, uh, <laughs> uh, who, uh, happenstance, a ship crashes into their city and they are given this technology to fight a parasitic race of alien brain slugs that crawl in through your ear canal, wrap around your brain and take over. And so it could be anyone around you and you would have no idea. They're a true, like kind of gorilla fighting force. And so, you know, this is in Marco's know, case, literally. Yeah. Oh, he morphs into a gorilla. He does. <laughs> he does. <laughs> uh, well, and then there's, uh, listen, I will never forget the epi- the issue where we find out that Marco's mom is one of the visors. Cause that's been oh, a yeah. whole, it's been a whole like plot point for that poor sweet boy. But yeah, so it's, it's them fighting through and they're teenagers and the books get progressively darker in a very Steven universe way where, you know, in the beginning it's like, Ooh, we were becoming lizards <laughs> to the end of we're ramming spaceships into things to end this civil war. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, but it's very all encompassing the, the world that is created are, I mean, when, you know, when we talk about aliens, they are, none of them are humanoid. Well, very few are humanoid. The Elemist kind of was, animated that way but we're talking blue horse people minotaur or uh centaur horse people with eye stalks who have no melts are psychic and uh absorb nutrients through their paws as well as uh the hork bajar who are these giant lizard dinosaur bird people with blades everywhere uh there are just so many of these uh yeah t- terrifying aliens as part of this series and so they might kind of just launch it in I feel like the most terrifying example is the Texans, at least out of like yes. aliens who show up all the time. Yes. Who are described as these like giant, bloated, eight feet long centipedes that are so carnivorous that if they smell blood, they go into a frenzy. And also, like, they're just a sack of guts inside of a really thin skin. So you puncture them at all, and they just lose control and start feeding on each other. Mm-hmm. it's like strategy number one these preteens learn is yeah if we can pop a tax and that will distract all the other taxis mm, it's <laughs> it's i mean and then we also are introduced to god characters we learn that everything is literally just a giant chess game mm-hmm. nothing matters it is a wild ride and so i feel like for alex many of the things were for me as well that i mean it was the animals i always just loved the animal aspect i did love the the incognito of getting to be someone no one knows you are and have this power because as especially as a strange which i now acknowledge a very queer child um who is chubby and was not liked by their peers this book kind of had a lot to offer these yeah. book series yeah um and you know it's it's one that i kind of i gotta be honest i'm really excited that it's stuck with so many people for so long but i feel like it's had a renaissance lately right like well between i mean we finally got the e-reader versions of these books six mm -hmm. or seven years ago we then got the republishing of the books with the actual like the 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 graphic cover that they morphed back and forth and it wasn't just yeah. art we've got the audiobooks now which i think i might that might be how i actually consume the whole series now is the audiobooks <laughs> and we're getting the graphic novels which to me this series just lends itself to graphic novel yeah. and we did have the tv series there for a while which was made yeah. by ytv out of canada and released on nickelodeon and they did the very thing that nickelodeon loves to do that they did the legends of Korra. 
uh, and Avatar to a point where they just start moving things around until they cancel it because nobody watches yeah. it. Because they move it from like 8 p.m. on a Friday to 3 p.m. on a Saturday or 2 p.m. on a Sunday. Who's watching? I'm still coming down from yeah. the, the buffet high after after church. Like, I don't have... Well, <laughs> and for me, like, I there was a point once they moved to Sunday nights, I couldn't watch it because mm-hmm. Sunday night was mandatory touched by an angel night. Yeah, and Wonderful World of Disney when when that was a, a thing as well. And also, I didn't have Nickelodeon in my house because we only mm. had a... So, like, I never got to watch it. I remember I was on a mission trip in Canada and there was one evening that they all kind of give us to do whatever. And that was when season two of the television show premiered. <laughs> and ooh wee, I got to watch about 15 minutes of it before the weird, like crunchy body things happened on the show. And the chaperone was like, no, this is not Christian. We cannot watch this. We're going to go have prayer circle and then go eat, go eat McDonald's. It um, is, it is my eternal quest. The impossible dream that I dream to find the Andalite puppet from that show (gasps) and somehow procure it for my own possession. I, through sources, the props master for the TV show, I have tracked down the studio that made the puppet and they're still active. So now I just have to find an excuse to go to Canada and infiltrate their facility and pull an Ocean's Eleven style heist of what must be one of the most decrepit puppets in existence now because that could not have been high quality foam. And I am sure over the last 20 or so years it has crumbled. I mean, even if they still have it, let alone if it did not get trashed as soon as the show got canceled which happens to so many things. That's true. But it's, I mean, have you ever seen on the the YouTube of like crazy movie props that get found when someone found Hoddle, one of the Hoddle puppets from the labyrinth, literally <laughs> in a, um, it's, it's, I believe it's in Ohio, but it's the place where all unclean baggage goes that you can buy it. And you just buy the suitcase and a woman opened it up and there was this terrible stench inside and it was literally the decaying latex foam huddle from Labyrinth. Yeah. Also, I'm going to be honest. You said huddle and my head went to, wait, I don't remember any puppets and Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah, it's, oh no, it's from, it was from the um, 2003 Easter bonnet where they did Oh the yeah, Avenue the crossover Q. with Avenue yeah, Q, yeah. Yeah, that was the Hoddle puppy, yeah, it was really just Kate Monster, no. Yeah, you, but no, you, it's- You have the exact right person here for that joke, because you said 2003, and I was like, damn it, Maddie beat me to it. <laughs> See, that's that's why, it's because that's, we are, it's like you, me, and Rachel are the theater people on that <laughs> And JD's there as well, JD likes theater as well, but I feel like that is only a comment that I can make with you or Rachel really it's just really with you and i knew you would get it because I, I knew you would um but yeah it's 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 so wild because to me it feels like it needs to be a movie or a tv show though you can do so much in the books because again it's like a lot of classic theater greek theater some of the most terrifying things are the things you can't see because she only described the yurks going in your ears so much like the numbing of the ear canal all these things but it was or like so only she can only do so much because I'm sure it was a lot of censor things with the kids books because yeah. this really you know it does I mean but a lot of YA it's why so many adults just read YA and this is the younger age this is like the young end of YA yeah for a lot of these books because uh, it's really that like older kids book series that kind of morphed into uh, forget the pun morphed into <laughs> YA series just because the thing is I think sh- they did a really good job of kind of 
maturing the content of the books with their target audience. Yeah. Um, especially when they're dealing with, you know, family members are evil. I mean, cause from the beginning, Jake's brother is a controller. So like, you know, that's just mm-hmm. one of those things. It's, it's from the beginning. That is what the stakes are set for us. But you know, when it's Marco's mom, who's been missing and, and things. And so it, it's, there's just, it's so massive. I mean, cause we even had transformer toys of Animorphs, which, mm-hmm. which, you know, were wa- kind of wild to think that, cause this is also just around the time that Potter is becoming movies, like just around yeah. well, the, cause the series released before the TV show started before Potter was a, well, cause it was 99 when the show ended. So like, yeah, it's even before Potter was published the first time because that was 99, right? Yeah, and the books, yeah. the last books came out in 2001. Yeah, so like this is really, so like we, not many YA series were becoming television series or movies, but like this series is so cinematic in the way that it's written, in the scale of the universe. I mean, because you got the, I think it was the tiger cover with the clouds in the background where it's, they're literally playing cosmic chess with two God entities. Yeah. And it's that, well, it's like, can I tell you, it was like that. And within the same month or two that I read the Amber spyglass. And I believe that is the moment where I went, God's not real. (laughs) None of this is real. I think that is probably the first time that I had my first true existential crisis on the existence of the universe was probably because of this book series and Philip Pullman. Like, (laughs) but I also think experiences like that, right. Are why this has persisted and flourished as, I mean, as people are approximate ages, we're not that far apart in age. No, no, not at all. Are revisiting some of these more formative, formative stories, formative, I hate to say properties in a context Mm -hmm. like this, because it feels gross and capitalist. Yeah, yeah. But we're rediscovering these things, revisiting these, revisiting these things. And like, there are a lot of things about who I am and what I believe that I was like, Oh yeah. Th- reading these books are the first time I had this. And sometimes it's benign. Like there's a gag in some of the earlier books about one of the entrances to the place where all the Yerks slide out of ears and feed on the radiation that they eat before they climb back in ears. One of the entrances to this Yerk pool is through a McDonald's and you get in there by ordering an a, a happy meal with extra happy that is the code phrase you use to to be waved back through the like fake walk-in freezer into the york speakeasy um and i always remember this like weird weird like i know it's not based in anything it's not anxiety but this like side eye anytime i look at a mcdonald's menu of like mm-hmm. something's fishy there it's it's is there anything about an ex- a happy meal with extra happy like the connection had been severed until I hit that book again, but it's like, oh my God, this thing has imprinted on me in this wild, wild way. But I also think like as kids, we are at that age. And I think we grew up in a time period in particular, the coming out of this like cold war era Mm -hmm. where a lot of the people in their thirties and forties making things or, you know, into their fifties, even making things had, survived the 40s and come up through the cold war and all of that 
and were so informed by growing up around acts of resistance Mm -hmm. that we consumed all of this media that was about on, on, on one end of the spectrum was about that very thing, right? Like the, the sort of dumb examples come to my mind, but things like Care Bears and Rainbow Bright and these children's properties that if you stop and look at them, have this like side of a heavy metal van quality to them coming out of the 80s because everything coming out of the 80s kind of has that aesthetic, mm-hmm. but are also informed by like, they're about fighting evil and overthrowing monarchs and like rebellion. Mm-hmm. And that is all seated. And then we get this book that's about, okay, no, this is a very quiet domestic rebellion. Mm-hmm. This could be anybody. This could be your parents. This could be your brother. This could be your teacher. And this seeding this idea of fundamentally, okay, this peop- these people may be close to me, but these people could be a threat to me mm-hmm. evolves in our late twenties, early thirties into, okay, I have to have the conversation again with my father about how, yes, bad things can happen to people he cares about if he votes for this candidate mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he cannot see that it's, it's, I cannot put into words how strange revisiting these books through the Trump administration was and watching about halfway through rereading these books, maybe a little later, but while reading these book, rereading these books was when I deleted my Facebook profile because I got tired of watching friends, parents be radicalized by the far right. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something about that timing too, right? The growing up around all of this media that is rebellious, that is about doing good and fighting for good, and then watching this sort of encroaching evil just seep in through the most mundane and frankly, just the dumbest possible ways, Mm -hmm. the dumbest possible ways. Some future civilization or alien race will judge us for letting a reality TV host, one, exist, but two, be the thing that functionally was the last straw? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, I wonder why people are so surprised when people stand up and protest and riot and demand change when literally, like, it started with, like, He-Man and She-Ra. Like, that's the whole point of She-Ra's, like, band of mm-hmm. people. And the Power Rangers and the Ninja Turtles. Like, there's just so much, like, that culminated with the Animorphs. And then even, you know, as we were in our 20s and, like, Hunger Games came out. It's one of those things that's, like, I don't know why they're so surprised because this is literally media they've allowed to present. But also it's media they have ignored. And in a way that it's just like, well, you're just mad that you've gotten caught. Like, it's one of those things you could either apologize or double down and everybody's doubled down. Yeah. Like they're doubling down. And it's just, it's, that's why it's also been really interesting to, uh, again, to revisit this because I'm like, oh, no wonder I eventually became the person I did because things like this series put those seeds in. They started there. And you know, and it's, it's, you know, a lot of those times you then sub sub uh, subconsciously ask yourself, it's like, Oh, well, what would those characters do? Like how would, you know, I always 
bonded with the idea of Tobias and like who he was as a character. Uh, our poor little tragic hawk boy who, uh, <laughs> if, if this book series had been released originally during Tumblr, the, the world for Tobias would be very different. Oh yeah. <laughs> but everybody loves oh, yeah. But also like not like having an affinity for Marco and not realizing it and then not realizing now, like realizing as an adult, it's like, Oh, I had the biggest crush on Marco, like the <laughs> biggest crush. Like it was just one of those things that it's, I, I continue to look back and go, there's so much of myself who is coded by this series in a way that I was never aware was happening at the time. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not mad at it at all. No. And, on, and honestly, I think a lot of people who have any sort of memory of the series should go back and revisit it for those reasons. Like, yeah. And I'll, I'll be the first to say like, not, not every book in this series is a grand slam home run. Absolutely. Like, not. Yeah. There's, <laughs> There is one. It's number twenty-five. It it is one of the ghost written ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I'm a big believer in not beating up on the ghost writers. Like even even mm-hmm. Applegate and Grant have come out and said like, "Hey, we're actually not like super proud of how we always handled working with ghost writers. We weren't happy with Scholastic at that point, and mm-hmm. we could have done better by the yeah. ghost writers." Mm-hmm. Um, like they've owned up to it, but also like, you know, there are 54 main series books and like 10 others. They're not mm-hmm. all going to be gold. Mm-mm. Number 25 is this one called The Extreme and we got to it and we were supposed to talk about it on Minds at York. And it's it's this, the Animorphs get dumped in the Arctic and they turn into polar bears and watch mm-hmm. some seals get eaten by other polar bears and then they go home. Mm-hmm. for 112 pages we're like yeah we're gonna we're gonna talk about what what this book we would have expected it to be based on the title mm-hmm. the extreme in the 1990s mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. what what was that book what were what would our expectations have been for this book based on the title and turned it into this like x game style thing um but most of them are at least fun most of them are at least a little bit just incomprehensibly wild right like they they get in the fantastic voyage everyone shrieks down and goes inside somebody's story they do time travel they do um space travel they do weird like there's one uh it may have been the one you mentioned earlier with the with the tiger the there's one where one of the alien gods playing chess bets the other that they can have mm-hmm. their hit squad kill off the animorphs. Mm-hmm. So the two alien gods drop them on this alien, like late capitalism meets the home shopping network on steroids. Mm-hmm. Everything is built on a colorful erector set planet where while these like genetically engineered alien children who keep getting mind wiped not to remember when they lose so they always believe they can always win are trying to murder everybody while all these alien robot hybrids are like trying to sell you a watch out of a trench coat yep um and of course the lesson there is this is actually 300 years in the future and these aliens are what the Yerks could become if someone develops a robot for them to live in and they realize, hey, we don't have to take away the free will of people. We can just be ourselves and be capitalists. Um, <laughs> not all of that totally right. holds up, but uh, most of it's fun. <laughs> 
Well, and can I tell you also, when I saw New Who for the first time, and it was the episode where they open up the Dalek, and I go, this is a fucking yes. This is literally what the Yerks would become. Like it, like, cause I remember like the Chi and this idea of like the, this kind of race. Oh God. And so it's one of those things I was like, do I just see this everywhere? Or did, I mean, she also like, they've been very upfront about like what they were inspired by. There are, I guess as an adult now, I realize how many Lord of the Rings references mm-hmm. and like visual tie-ins there are with this. Um, but yeah, it's, kind of what do you do when you like you just make everything bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until literally they pretty much bring in you know the the immortal they bring in you know the original evil those kinds of things for this kind of grand race of brain slugs i mean because you even they even talk about which i think is an interesting conversation for to have in the particular setting of when they discover the cell of yurks who are within who are being kept in cages and things because they do not agree with the the kind of general programming of the yurks and they're trying to fight against which again is another really interesting time especially i believe that was a cassie issue and cassie always had a really interesting narrative she's one of my favorites because she really tried to toe that moral line in a way that Rachel didn't. Mm-hmm. Marco wasn't smart enough to, and Jake sometimes was too pragmatic to worry about. Yeah. And so Cassie would be the voice of reason in many ways, uh, where I believe she's the first one that allows one of those. She trusts those Yerks enough to let the Yerk into her brain. Yeah. And, you know, cause that's everyone at home sitting there going, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Um, but also, which one of us probably wouldn't have also really, oh God, because what is the, what's the name of the youth organization? Like, I forget. The, the sharing. The sharing. And obviously, as an evangelical kid, this mm-hmm. absolutely could have happened at my church. I would have done it. I would have absolutely become a controller because I was that kind of teenager. But it's, it really, there's so many th- moments. So I guess I talked about Cassie a little bit. Were there any characters of, I guess our kind of our main six, uh, and it can go beyond that, but that you really just kind of felt like your younger self really connected to. And then as an adult, are you still connected to that same character? Uh, no, it's a 180. Um, as a kid, I mean, <sighs> Tobias is kind of the goat, right? Like, mm-hmm. We can, we can recognize mm-hmm. Tobias's narrative is like the best of all worlds yeah. from a from a reader standpoint for him it sucks yeah um he is the loner among a group of not necessarily all loners but a group of people who are not necessarily all the most popular mm-hmm. either mm-hmm. some of them are talented the ones who have money tend to be the ones who have conventional talents in the 1990s framework as mm-hmm. often was the case if you could afford gymnastic lessons and basketball mm-hmm paraphernalia like you got good at those things because you could do those things regularly um cassie was good with animals because that's what her family did and she cared about them marco like marco's got an interesting through line too because he goes from like trying to look out for his father who is still like really suffering a loss Mm -hmm. uh, and having trouble letting that go to like watching his father heal and realizing he kind of isn't because at the same time he's dealing with all this horror and finding out the truth and having mm-hmm. to keep that but it's still very terrestrial yeah tobias 
so I have I have kind of the same problem sometimes talking about Animorphs that I have talking about Riverdale, which is <laughs> there comes a point where people say, Alex, this cannot possibly be true. Tobias starts as a human who's not very popular. Book one gets stuck as a bird. Mm-hmm. Eventually gains the ability to morph human again. But the same rule applies. If he stays human for more than two hours, he's going to be stuck there and space deity is not going to give him another mulligan. Mm-hmm. so he actually likes being a bird better because mm-hmm. there's less societal expectation mm-hmm. so he stays a bird and just occasionally morphs human to go on dates with rachel and by the way this alien kid who they found in the ocean is his uncle and his father was an andalite general and was the one who gave them all the morphing powers mm-hmm. and had actually deserted to live on earth and had l- trapped himself in a human form and was happily married to Tobias's mom until the good space god was like no I need you to go fight actually so he reroute time to drop Elfinger back in space and Tobias's mom wound up like heartbroken and missing memory and blind and therefore Tobias was orphaned to like get kicked back and forth across the country between aunts and uncles who didn't want mm-hmm. him like yeah there was so much going on there that I, I of course i loved tobias as a kid i love tobias now mm-hmm. um setting him aside like x was always cool in the same way that like growing up watching saved by the bell before school screech was cool like mm-hmm. he's the weirdo of course he's going to appeal to me like he's the jughead he's the screech he's the steve urkel like i'm a sucker for that true um i was more than i like to admit a marco kid mm-hmm. not that i think there's anything wrong with marco but it became a running joke for me during minds at york that you know sometimes said Mar- marco said very libertarian things that make me worry about who marco would be in the 2020s uh me too uh honestly <laughs> um so adult alex who has shifted further and further left on the political spectrum 100 percent was shocked to learn that cassie was his favorite now mm-hmm. i'm i will defend almost anything and everything cassie does mm-hmm. i there is a decision cassie makes very late on in the series that is basically um saving jake's soul as she sees it making sure he can look at himself the next day in the mirror mm-hmm. in exchange for handing the yurks a major victory mm-hmm. a major victory mm-hmm. and there are consequences to that and i we recorded those books and i was the only one who was like no i understand where cassie is mm-hmm. coming from i don't think she was wrong there was a cost, but at this stage of the game, there was going to be a cost regardless. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, cause that's not spoilers. Cause this book series is 25 years old at this point. So if I remember correctly, she is the one that doesn't go into the finale. Correct. She's the one that's dead. Or is it Rachel that's dead going into the finale? So, okay. Um, Rachel like last chapter. Uh, no, there's a whole last book. After. Right. That's what I yeah, thought. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. There's a whole, there's a whole book that is like 
what's after the war mm-hmm. um rachel dies at the end of the war rachel basically pulls her own maneuver knowing knowing that she can win knowing that she can win she sacrifices herself and i mean would that have happened if cassie had not given the yurks that victory honestly i think probably rachel still would not have come out of this thing because rachel by the time this series ended right like rachel was not built to do anything but fight it's true if rachel had survived rachel would be running blackwater Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah uh um Cassie is the only one in the last book who ends up emotionally well-adjusted. Marco is probably next closest there. He's got like fame and popularity and he goes full beast boy, right? He is starring in movies about himself, playing himself, morphing on screen. Uh, Tobias like shows up for Rachel's funeral and never shows up again. Jake jake can never deal with the fact that he killed so many yurks at the end of the war to help win the war and like is kind of a shell of himself who no one can really deal with so when axe who is now like a general in the andalite army sends this distress message to the andalites and the andalites that's not exactly it but that's the simple version of it his ship sends a distress message um the Andalites like come to Earth and they're like, hey guys, Axe is in trouble. We need the Animorphs. Like Jake and Marco and Cassie. Jake and Marco and does Tobias? Maybe Tobias does show back up to go I th- on. I, th- I think it's one of those that like at the last second he shows up. I'm having the yeah. hardest time remembering this last book because I yeah. don't think I visited it since the beginning. It's which is what it's called. Um, yeah. Part of me says Tobias never showed up again, but part of me says Tobias was in that crew. I, I'm going to go with Tobias is not there, but it ends with like Jake and Marco going into space and crossing outside of the the solar system into another or out of the galaxy into another galaxy where they're met by this like eldritch borg style consciousness Mm -hmm. that has overtaken axe and like fade to black like Mm -hmm. missile fires from both ships cut to black there is you can find it online easily there's this letter from ka applegate which i imagine was applegate and grant both and just ka applegate was the name signed to it because of the time it was released that was like hey yeah uh we know a lot of you aren't happy about how this ended we stand by it if you got to this point and don't understand that war sucks and nobody mm-hmm. comes out of it well, uh, I don't know that you got from this book what we meant you to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. it's. I mean, Jake, that's kind of exactly what I would expect a person like Jake to turn into. Like, you no, know, alti alti shade for those kinds of type A all-American hero boys. Uh, you know, it's 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 very interesting but it also kind of shows how much time had shifted though because series ended what 2001 yeah 2002 yeah so and it was pre 9 11 
So the, yep. the like the world was a very different place before that. And so it's, you know, I remember just thinking that in that last, cause all I remember I think is in that is the last chapter of that book where I went, no, 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 no. And then it's done. And I went, no, what? <laughs> uh, but then I also went, that seems like what needs to happen. Like it, rashly because i've seen enough star trek at that point at being a star trek kid growing up like he is it's good the the alien is called the one and he's yep. an alien and he's the one that makes a deal and saves the defeated yurks at that point for at the end of the war um and he is their kind of last thing and so it yeah i think for me it was the same way like i I saw i idolized tobias because i fell for what she was trying to do which was put the reader in the experience of Tobias where we felt his human side, but also the Hawk side. Cause yeah. there were all those times like when Rachel had to convince him to eat, like kill to eat. Yeah. Which again is a very Rachel thing to do. Um, I mean, Rachel kills her cousin at one point in this series. Like it's just Rachel gets it. And if the series were to be created today, Rachel would be the leader, not Jake like hands down. I don't know. I mean, this is what? one of those things. I mean, this is and this is why I say like we have to acknowledge the Michael Grant in the equation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't think even today that Michael Grant would be like, no, Rachel's the one with the right answers. Oh, not that she has the right answers. I just think she would try to take that leader spot. Well, she did that at one point in the yeah. books. Oh, she absolutely does. Yeah, there is there are arcs where it's like, what is the way things go wrong the fastest? Rachel takes the reins. Yeah. Oh, of course. I mean, and that's her, that is her, I mean, one of her many tragic flaws, yeah. which is so funny that she and Tobias do end up kind of in, in that pairing together, especially when they, like, he literally has like a very weird relationship with a lady hawk and she's just called the lady hawk. I, but, but it also makes sense. Cause like, that's his whole thing is at one point he's like, do I just embrace that? I'm a bird forever now. Like, is that this thing that has to happen? I have made so many Sam a bird jokes about <laughs> about the two of them. Um, as a side note, the next Animorphs graphic novel is book three, which is the first Tobias book. Mm -hmm. And I am at this point kind of friends with Chris Grine. We've had him on the show a, a bunch of times yeah. and we've talked with him. Uh, anytime he puts out a new book, we like, okay, we haven't done an episode of Minds at York in six months. Well, Chris has a new book out. Let's do one. And we just, it's the Chris <laughs> yeah. Grindcast at this point. Mm -hmm. um, I know how hard it apparently is to do a book narrated by a bird that 90% of that book is just in her monologue and make it interesting. I cannot wait to see what this book looks like. Me too. He he has this running joke going on twitter and i swear to god if he would do a print of this for like a convention or whatever i would buy 20 um but he joked for a long time that his solution was tobias would talk to a little tobias hand puppet i love that like a and he's human tobias hand puppet no like a little uh, tobias tobias bird with on his wing another little smaller tobias bird but you can find Chris's art of this. It's hilarious. Hilarious. I'm going to have to share it on our social media. That's so funny. Um, oh, my God. But you mentioned the Lady Hawk is from book three, which is also 
also the book where like Tobias tries to take his own life by like flying into a mall skylight because he just cannot. That was book three of this children's series. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a lot. It's well, and Tobias really like we a lot of people are because like Marco also like we got two 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 sad boys, one who deflects with humor. Uh, one who deflects with brooding um, who have really tragic stories and kind of seeing how the two versions handle it, I think is right. But it also kind of set the tone for what the character was going through. And that was also that point where we're having very special after school episodes of certain series and things. And Mm -hmm. teen suicide was on the rise in the late nineties. And so this is something that's really interesting to have that conversation about with it because it was done in a very frank and honest way that you know whether in actually inspired conversations or not who knows um but it was something interesting to have in like book three to set the tone for what was going to come in in later books because it's it's there's a really fascinating calculus if you look at the two of them and even jake you can throw into this right Mm -hmm. marco starts in a really dark place and actually not counting the whole going into space and fighting nightmare Borg, mm-hmm. um ends in a pretty good place right like mm-hmm. he manages to reunite his father and mother and they get a happy ending mm-hmm. and he gets fame and fortune and adulation and kind of like everything goofy kid him ever wanted yeah jake loses his brother and his cousin and cannot cope anymore and goes from like all-star basketball player 2.5 kids a dog and a cat to car garage 90s american reagan ideal to like basically what the 90s understanding of a vietnam veteran was mm-hmm. and loses everyone who mattered to him along the way Tobias gets a couple of like false wins and then the floor falls out from under him. Tobias never gains ground. No. Tobias is just like the baseline of what's the worst that could happen. Yeah. Um like poor Hawk Boy. They he gets a a letter from attorney one from an attorney one book that's like, hey, uh your father was an andalite come claim your inheritance the attorney is viscer three trying to find his nemesis son there's the book where they find tobias's mom who was in a car accident and doesn't remember him Mm -hmm. and like is also herself kind of just not entirely in the same reality as all of us because space deity rewrote her reality and Mm -hmm. kind of broke her a little bit when he did Mm -hmm. it's it's i mean obviously rachel kind of has that same jake arc except she dies like yep cassie's the only one who sort of makes it through with almost everyone she cares about jake notwithstanding yeah but still like finds someone in her adult life and has a career and is adjusted like everyone kind of has a different angle and arc 
but like watching especially in the three guys kind of watching the super serious one is the one who loses everyone the one who kind of rolls with it and calculates and makes a plan and is clever not always smart but clever mm-hmm. like he's the one who survives and and the sad one is sad the sad one is always sad i sad i don't know sad. Yeah. i don't know how else to couch tobias it's it's so true it's it's true you know but i I always appreciated Cassie because I was a wannabe horse girl and Cassie was a real horse girl. And so I, I always appreciated her. And I think there was a kinship there, but again, there was something brooding and mysterious about Tobias. And then I thought Marco was funny. And then Axe is truly funny. Like you appreciate Axe uh, for, for what he is because he is the, he's the weird alien kid. He's the Fez of the series. He's the weird alien (laughs) kid learning earth customs and, I mean, it's really, it's axe eating food is just so funny. (laughs) So this is another one for the trying to explain how my life is intersecting with animorphs sounding like I'm making things up file. Um, If you have read these books, you will understand why what I'm about to talk about is cool. If you have not, I'm sorry. Um... Cinnabon follows me on Twitter. Oh, because Axe loves his Cinnabon. So yeah, um, a lot of these books happen in malls because the '90s, and key to that is Axe's love. I mean, Andalites don't have mouths, so whenever he turns into a human, food is his thing, and nothing just gets him more ready to go than a Cinnabon. There's a book where he eats an entire, like, full sheet pan of Cinnabons and, like, almost dies. <sighs> there's just something so, like, there's there's a book where, like, some other alien, some other Andalites come to Earth, and one of them is a young female Andalite because it was the 90s. The binary apparently also existed in space. Um, and, like... They go on a date to an amusement park where he uses the blade on the end of his tail to slice open a vending machine so they can just sit in an amusement park and eat junk food together. Which, great date. Yeah, honestly, like, also one of my favorite details about the finale of this series, once everything's done, there's a, like, tourism exchange between Earth and the Andalite homeworld, and the Andalite homeworld also starts importing just ridiculous amounts of junk food. Um, but like the strangeness of Axe is, I mean, I think any good dramatic storytelling, you have to have humor for contrast Mm -hmm, and Axe is so often that thing, because no matter what happens at the very least, like Axe being a little not from this world, being entirely not from this world, Mm -hmm. like at least provides some room for that now sometimes axe is also himself a little dramatic because yes. he's a prince the the big the big rule on the andalite home world the the law of zero's kindness is you don't share it's the prime directive you don't mm-hmm. share technology with species that have not developed it mm-hmm. that's how you got the yurks named for prince zero who helped the Yerks figure out how to travel to other planets and conquer people. 
um, celebrated, decorated Andalite prince uh, Elfanger Serenial Shantel, Axe's older brother, could not possibly publicly have given away morphing technology to humans. That can't be the case. Axe, it must have been you who did it. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, take the fall. Mm-hmm. So, like, he quickly gets disowned and then just used as a prop by his people who, by the end of the series, are like, these are supposed to be humans' allies. These are the great hope, right? These are mm-hmm. these are the aliens who will come and rescue us if we can hold out long enough. No, they're just hoping enough Yurks invade Earth that they can just blow it up and be done mm-hmm. with them. Yep. They are, I mean, they are imperialism. They mm-hmm. are colonization. They are the the worst of that part of humanity. Mm-hmm. And X gets tied up in that sometimes too, but also sometimes like he refuses to stop calling Prince Jake Prince or calling Jake Prince Jake in every time Jake says, Don't call me Prince, it's funny. Mm-hmm. Um also the show is divisive, by which I mean I like it for what it is, and most mm-hmm. people I think hate it. Uh, but the actor who plays Axe on the show, so good, uh, Paulo Costanzo, I believe is his mm-hmm, name. Mm-hmm. He understood the assignment. He did well, and he's very famous now because he was on. Uh, he's been on lots of television series recently, and he has a great look. Uh, but he's so funny. Like he absolutely. It was really fun. I'm glad you transitioned to the show because this was actually the next place we were going. He absolutely got it. And honestly, I thought for the most part the casting of the show did a really good job of kind of catching exactly how I thought all these kids looked in my brain. Like the only, the only one who was a left turn to me. And I feel like this is the power Rangers fault, right? Mm -hmm. Because the power Rangers for children's TV changed. I think the formula in a way that Adamorphs had to react to. Yep. Absolutely. The weird outsider for the Power Rangers was not a Steve Urkel Screech Powers type. Mm-hmm. It was the hot badass. Mm-hmm. I feel like the TV show's version of Tobias, who rolls up in a leather jacket, just kind of too cool mm-hmm. for everybody, mm-hmm. is so informed by Tommy Oliver. Oh, so much. Um, and I don't, I think that choice works for the show. I don't think that's a bad choice for the show. Um, but that, that was the one who I'm like, even, even rewatching it, I kind of forgotten that that was the case. Mm-hmm. And 20 years later, it's like, that's right. They tried to make Tobias the hot bad boy. Mm-hmm. When really he's the, he's the Billy Cranston. He's the David Yost. Truly. I mean, I yeah, like those. if we're the, going with that Power Rangers, yes, like yes. Group. I mean, the 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 Tobias has always reminded me of. I don't know if this is a thing normal people do. I did this more as a kid than I do now. But as a kid, like I would read a book, and I'd like kind of borrow how people I knew in real life looked, and like let them be the stand-in in that mm-hmm. book. Um, like I can, I can tell you exactly who was always Draco Malfoy was the blonde asshole who bullied me. Um, and whose father went to jail for tax fraud. Um, 
there were two people who kind of traded off Tobias. One was very much of the Screech Powers mold. The other, though, and this has always informed my reading of Tobias, was the military history nerd. Mm-hmm. It is my... I, there is some of this in the text. There's more of this early on in the text than later in the text. But Tobias was, I think, the non-toxic flavor of the kid who could tell you everything about Civil War battles. Mm-hmm. Who just mm-hmm. knew military history inside. He was like that kind of like deep history nerd, but kept to himself. That has always been my read. So seeing him roll up and like, leather jacket and tommy oliver fied it's always just the biggest departure to me always um well you know what's really funny is that actor would go on to be in queer as folk years later like four years later i mean awesome (laughs) awesome um yeah it's what's so funny also is like seeing i mean it makes sense that a lot of them were like 20 when they filmed yeah. these when they played these characters because i mean they did a lot of what like percy jackson and stuff did too is they they made them older than they yeah. actually were um well and a lot of that and they ran into this a little bit when filming the show but a lot of that was exactly the reason you thought it was it was getting around the fact that there are laws around how late kids can work and they needed mm-hmm. to film a lot of this show at night, at night. mm-hmm Mm-hmm. they didn't have the budget to try to do day as night yeah not that that ever works when you do have the budget but it's true <laughs> it, it is a shame though i think with the exception of oh paolo and sean ashmore like no one's really none of the five have really done well maybe brooke nevin who brooke nevin's done a little bit brooke nevin brooke nevin was in a movie recently that was directed by oh i'm blanking on the actor's name he was on i zombie he played the cop on the show oh interesting because she was in yeah she was in a movie this year called meet me in new york that may be the movie, movie I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah. it's a TV movie. Yeah, so she's done, I lie, she's done quite a bit. Yeah. She's and a lot of day bits, like bit bit parts and stuff. So yeah. single off at lots of TV. Oh, she was on CSI for three years. Yeah. And um, uh, the actor who plays the human version of Visser 3, Victor Trent, mm-hmm. uh, just an A-plus name right there, very Stan Lee in terms of mm-hmm. turning mm-hmm. the evil name into the, like, civilian name. Mm-hmm. He's done a bunch of stuff. He was on, he does, I think, voice work, but he's also been on, I know he was on uh, uh, Fringe. He played one of the observers mm-hmm. on Fringe. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also, we need to acknowledge the real star of the show marco's puffy orange 90s jacket absolutely uh who apparently he's now a shredded bodybuilder that actor he's okay cool nothing else yeah that's that just i'm literally just looking at the cast on on google right now <laughs> and everybody else has a headshot and it's his is just him like flexing in a tank top and I'm like go off man I mean, yeah you ripped his head go off my dude but yeah it's marco's jacket is incredible like it's it's really the style on the show was peak 98 like absolute peak 98 this is 
I've said this on Minds at York. This show is to the 90s aesthetic what any show made 20 years later mm-hmm. about the 60s is to the 60s aesthetic. Mm-hmm. I have never mm-hmm. seen a show, a product of its own time, catch the like hyper-exaggerated, nostalgic version of itself, mm-hmm. as well as Animorphs did just doing its thing. The, the idea that there are computer cafes that kids just hang out in and like play video games in, I get it. Like it, it's it's all pieces of things that make sense. It's all useful for having a unit set somewhere that can be standing all the time for them to meet. Mm-hmm. That's not, let's use the same bedroom set over and over. Absolutely. I get it, like smart decision, but this space exists in a way that it never existed in the real world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's because so many parents were afraid of the internet at this point, and so who, yeah, my parents would have let me would not have let me just go hang out. That's not something that would have happened. Uh, but it's, it's I. Where do you think, kind of watching the series now, where do you think they're kind of missteps, other than, well, or do you think there were missteps other than Nickelodeon not knowing how to really embrace the show? So, <clears throat> I. It's hard for me, it's hard for me to really like call a lot about the show missteps, especially having talked to some people who worked on it and knowing that like a lot of the production of this show was actually tied to and informed by production on the Goosebumps show. Mm-hmm. And the Goosebumps show's waning viewership affected the budget for this show some. And this show never really catching on also affected Goosebumps some. Like they became the sort of weird, weird connected properties for their production company that created some weird challenges. So setting that aside, I think, I think, and I can name another major property, an even bigger property that this might also be true of i think there is something to be said for don't start producing tv or movies about a book series until that book series is done mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um well i'll you, say this you kind of mentioned game of thrones <laughs> i'm sorry what's that i'm not familiar with I, that I, no idea no idea yeah. I'm... um uh i know nothing um I take it back. There is one major misstep that was a misstep, and it's the same misstep that the Animorphs movie that is in development hell right now has made, not respecting the input of the creators. Mm-hmm. Um, Applegate and Grant have kind of stepped away from any involvement with the movie because they just weren't feeling listened to, and in the same ways that they weren't listened to about the TV show. They felt like it was a little bit history repeating itself. Not that they wish any ill will or want anything but the best, but for their own like happiness with the project, they had to walk away. So that would be the big thing, right? That kind of, I think, goes part and parcel with let the books finish coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of the challenge is the same challenge that you see even just adapting it book by book into comics, right? Mm-hmm. There are books that 
Applegate and Grant have said they would do differently now. There are books that aren't interesting now or feel dated now in ways. There are, I mean, there are ideas and concepts that sort of evolved throughout the series, right? There are things that, depending on which edition of the book you have, like there are some slight changes and edits in some of the first couple of books because the rules were explained one way originally in book one. And then mm. there are just some slight changes, not to like how morphing worked, but things like how thought speech worked in some of the oh, yeah. earlier books. Mm -hmm. When they're morphed into animals, they can, they're basically telepathic. Mm -hmm. um, in some of the early books, they could also hear your thoughts if you were still in your human form, but you had morphed. So like, if you're a frog and I'm me, and I think something at you, you'll still hear it. That lasted like a book or two yeah, and then went away. Um, and I think they like tweaked some of that in the, the second prints or like that second edition with the different cover. Um, it was very much something that was, there were plans for, but also some of the specifics evolved over time. Um, I think letting letting the property finish, like letting the series finish, lets you look at that holistically. Um, but I also think like there are parts of it that there are some books you could just combine together. There are some books that you either need to cut or flesh out. There's this second race of aliens. I say second, like the second nemesis race of aliens mm -hmm. that gets introduced called the Helmicrons. They're in two books they basically were introduced as a comic relief like let's let the pressure off for a book mm -hmm. and have these goofy aliens that are warlike and it turns out they get all of their inspiration from what they believe their long dead leaders would have wanted them to do and they accept that as gospel and hey that hits different now doesn't it huh doesn't it ain't it oh boy oh we they're also like the size of a grain of of rice um and like wildly wildly incapable of getting anything done unless they shrink you down and make you meet them on their level and hey the more i say about it the less silly they sound huh mm -hmm. uh <laughs> but at the time they were meant to be silly right you either need to do more of them or just kind of skip that right like yeah um some of the books that are in that like let's say third quarter of the series mm -hmm. the okay this is profitable so we're going to keep going and more of this will be ghost written than not but also like you can tell applegate and grant are kind of ready to ready to wrap it up and move on to other things mm -hmm. there are parts of that that i think could be consolidated condensed mm -hmm streamlined i also think there are parts of it that anyone adapting it now would be wildly either underserving the material or irresponsible or just missing a great opportunity not to flesh out right like mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier the auxiliary animorphs who we haven't really talked mm -hmm. about at all i was they were my next they were my next point yeah um near the end of the series so around the middle of the series, the animals try to give one kid the ability to morph, and that goes very badly. It's a three-part story that spans three different books, and it's kind of like 
it was from my childhood reading of the series one of the most memorable parts to me i know you said you got to david and you were like who the hell is that who's that but but like the more i think about it it is coming back to me yeah i mean and he <laughs> this one other kid does more to destabilize and almost take out the team in three books than Visser three does in the entire series mm-hmm. um which i think is another selling point of this book to kids like accuse accuse many series of underestimating children never accuse animorphs of underestimating children mm-hmm. um but the auxiliary animorphs are this like late game hail mary almost on the part of the main team to bolster their ranks to cause some confusion like at this point I think by the time we get the auxiliary Animorphs, the original team has been outed to the Yerks. Mm-hmm. They're living in the Hork-Bajir colony. Oh yeah, by the way, in addition to everything else, uh, Tobias is also basically Moses to a group of Hork-Bajir. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but I love, the, I love them. The Hork-Bajir Chronicles, I think, is my favorite yes. auxiliary book. It's so good. Oh. Uh, well, I remember it being good. I have not revisited it. it no, it's I'm a little scared about revisiting, but it was phenomenal. I remember it's it. very strong. It is, yeah. it is probably my second favorite, but always has been. I am an Andalite Chronicles kid. Mm-hmm. Like it went out for me just a little bit because of how absolutely, re- literally reality shattering it is at the end. Mm-hmm. Um. So things are bad. The Animorphs have been outed. They need to cause chaos and confusion. So they end up in a children's hospital and they offer the various long-term patients in the children's hospital the ability to morph. And like, it's a hard book to talk about in 2022 because of how much the language has changed and how much... I think more work we are doing and should continue yeah. to do to like talk about disabilities with respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I actually think for its time, especially the book does a good job of yeah. some of the, at least some of the more nuanced parts of that mm-hmm. conversation. Mm-hmm. It gets into the fact that some of these kids have disabilities that they gained through the course of their lives. They were in a car accident or they developed cancer or whatever and one of the the things about morphing is it kind of resets your dna mm-hmm. so some of them who didn't have congenital disabilities are cured and have to have to pretend to still live with these disabilities have to continue to pretend not to be able to walk while others still can't walk still can't Mm -hmm. see well and that was also because you know and this is a hard one to talk about because they literally had to go through and go all right were you born with this or did this happen in your life and they have the one boy who's in the wheelchair who lies to them yeah and so when they demorph for the first time they're in the battlefield and he cannot walk he is stranded and it becomes a liability for the team because it's of course the middle of a battle and they have these untrained new kids yeah. uh, essentially that they've given the ability and while they get angry at him 
from what I remember, because I haven't gotten back to this part of the series, he's like, why wouldn't I take this advantage? Of course I lied to you. And I'm like, duh, I would have done the same fucking thing. Like he's because i also i think if i remember correctly like he'd been pretty much locked like tucked away by family and stuff and like so that was his existence was being limited and this was the first time that he was even in morph he was getting to move on his own yeah and so like of course you're gonna take that opportunity but i think part of it was just i'm not gonna let my friends risk their lives and not stand next to them yeah um and that's, I mean, that's something that the series in different ways prior to this has also addressed. Like one of the things we learn about the Andalites is they are very ableist. Like one of the most, in their culture, in their terms, like one of the most shameful things, as they would put it, to happen to you is to lose your tail blade in battle. Mm-hmm. You are shunned and a pariah to society. Um, give me more of the gay Andalite couple living quietly on Earth, mm-hmm. one taking care of the other who was injured in battle. Give me more of this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's also kind of like anytime you get anytime you get something that, and this is one of the things the book does well, right? Like you are it is easy to paint villains who are just evil and mm-hmm. let me be clear like i actually generally am in favor of that i think that i think that there is such a thing as a really lazy humanization of an evil an evil character that then makes it too easy just to be like oh hey darth vader is pretty cool i had it bad too go vader and then suddenly you're in this weird, like, the empire is right to fascism pipeline that exists on the internet. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Animorphs goes that far. I don't think there's ever a point you're like, oh, yeah, Visser 3, Esplan 9466 was right. No. But you do get the, well, no, we are blind slugs bouncing around in a shallow pool of water of course once we know that there's so much more to existence than that we want it we want to see and to feel and to taste and to hear and to live in the world in the same way mm-hmm. and the denial of that the treating that as something that is not of they don't deserve that because they didn't have it in the first place. There's an ableism inherent to the entire Andalite, your conflict. Mm-hmm. And I think seeing that borne out in the Animorphs fight back by saying, well, no, these are the exact people who both sides would write off. Yeah. They are they are alike in both. And because that's once the Yerks have those things, of course they turn on each other and they prey on those who they perceive to be weak and they don't make space for any Yerk who might see it differently or not be able to control a host or whatever. So the Animorphs takeaway there is we have to be better than them. We win by being better than them. Yeah. And isn't that why they specifically go to the children's hospital? Because they were like, this is one place the Yerks will never come to infiltrate because they don't see them as usable bodies. Yes. Yeah. Which is actually, I think we could put on its head a really interesting way to talk about how we perceive 
able-bodiedness versus disability and and things also it's so funny like as someone who now knows that like i am neurodivergent and i've been working through a lot of those things a lot of my adult life how do we have those kinds of conversations in in a contemporary setting talking about this kind of thing like what happens if you do have some sort of neurodivergence a something with your mental stability how does that affect being a host well you know what is what does that mean like there's so many things this has always been like i don't have a good clear answer right but Mm -hmm. this is one of my favorite like what is a radical reading of anamorphs Mm -hmm. kind of questions because if you talk about if you reframe the relationship between a yerk and its host as not parasitic but symbiotic something it easily could be if consent were a factor and you think about people who struggle with a variety of neurodivergency or mental health Mm -hmm. issues there are so many scenarios in which hey maybe actually like having a Mm co-pilot could help right Mm -hmm. there'd have to be like again an understanding of consent there'd have to be Maybe, maybe when it's time for the Yerk to go feed is a time to check in to be like, Hey, is, is this okay? Are you like, mm-hmm. do we let, do we let this Yerk back in for you? But I mean, people who struggle with a number of processing disorders or a number of, I mean, I could see a case for people with depression. Hey, if there's someone else with me, if that is, if I am afraid of being alone and I am depressed or I am afraid that this will always be the case, if that gets in my way, or even just like, hey, I'd like to have someone else to talk to. Mm-hmm. I I just, in the middle of this, I started bursting out laughing because I just had the vision of a little like carrying case like aquarium and a big yerk in it with a little sparkly vest that said emotional support <laughs> slug. I, I can't, I should not be allowed to have thoughts because that is just terrible and wonderful for me. Well, cause wasn't, I mean, the, the sea and rays in the TV show, they transport yerks in thermoses. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the things the TV show never fully got. Cause like, to me, the yerks are huge, but can, like in the books they are a sizable creature yeah who then is able to and that's why they like numb your ear canals but i also know for a lot of people they're compared to the like the ear slugs in wrath of khan so like you know it's similar i guess but uh, it didn't when when uh when, when we find the good yurks quote-unquote instead of working with them don't they give them morphing technology if they agree to stay and morph for two hours and they all become whales and then go out to the sea is isn't that what happens so you're conflating two plot beats a little bit what i thought yeah yeah Yeah. there is there is a yerk so you mentioned cassie let a yerk into her head yeah that yerk ultimately is allowed to morph into a whale and goes off and becomes a whale there are also Yerks who are offered the ability to morph. At the end of the series, there are like Yerk Empire Yerks 
who once Visser 3 has the cube, their response is, well, wait a minute. Why would I still infest somebody? Let me just morph into someone and go. Yeah. And like part the Yerk Empire starts to fracture once they have this choice. Yeah. Ooh, I've got to read. It's this, 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 the last third of the series that I have. I'm just realizing my knowledge is very shaky on. <laughs> but it's like, so my thoughts recently have been how, how does technology change this story? Because if we're doing it now, unless they make it a period piece, how does, how does this story exist in a place where there is no way someone is not talking about the conspiracy theory of brain slugs on TikTok? Like there's no, like in a world where Scientology is so prevalently known a cult, but everybody kind of lets it go. How did, because this is one of those, this is just when everybody's getting internet in their homes mm -hmm. uh, and things. How does mass technology change this story for humans in a way that it didn't in 1998? So this question verbatim, how would technology have changed this story was one of the bullet points in the show note guide that we used to guide every episode of Minds at York. Yes. And a lot of the points you've brought up the contemporary to the 90s answers are actually there. There are issues like, if memory serves, the way they even find the cube in the first place in the David trilogy is someone posts a video or a post on a message board online and the Animorphs find it. Mm -hmm. Or technically the Chi find it and tell the Animorphs about it. Um, there are... There is a later book where the Animorphs are on the run. They're trying to make it to the Hork-Bajir Valley. Or no, the Yorks have found the Hork-Bajir Valley and they're coming to attack. That's when this is. Um, the Yorks are coming to attack the free Hork-Bajir and re-enslave them. And the Animorphs are trying to clear off any campers who are nearby. Mm -hmm. And they run into a group of campers who are Trekkies. And their response is, oh my God, this is so cool. Of course, we're not going anywhere. We have cameras. We're going to start taking pictures of all of you and we're posting you on the internet when we get home. So like the seeds of this mm -hmm. are there in a lot of ways. Now that yeah. said, we eventually made this less a recurring every episode question and just an as needed question because 99% of the time, one one answer could do more damage than anything else security cameras if at any yeah. point the yurks had put up security cameras in any corridor leading to an entrance to the yurk pool it would have been game over yeah security cameras are like we eventually had to be like it's always going to be a problem there is there is a book where marco morphs in a crowded elevator and he goes into the back corner and turns into whatever he turns into because he has seen his mother in this elevator and wants to follow her. And all I can think is an elevator would have a camera in it. Mm -hmm. Marco just did that on camera. But other than cameras, which I think are the biggest trap, a lot of the seeds are already there in ways that I think you could adapt them. I mean, there's even a book where 
Area 51, Area 40, what's the real world number? It's Area 42 in the book. Yeah, it's Area 51 in the real world. Area 51. One of them, yeah. Yeah. They, they, they have their Area 51 book where the Animorphs know that there's some piece of Andalite technology in Area 42, and they're going to go and they're going to retrieve it before the Yerks can get there because these weird horses are doing surveillance on this like roadside attraction near area 42 and the yurks communicate with viscer three through pagers <laughs> these horses that are controlled by yurks have a pager and whenever viscer three pages them their human controller contact goes to a payphone and picks up that payphone and calls viscer three So, like, a cell phone actually makes that a whole hell of a lot easier. A lot easier, yeah. Well, yeah, it's... I guess my my question is, is how the rest of the world... But also, at that point, it is one of those things. It's like, well, of course, you see... You're not going to see what you're not looking for. Well, and, and that's so. just... There's... Once the shit hits the fan, there is a book where the governor of California who I will always and forever imagine as Carrie Fisher. Yeah. The governor of California literally goes on TV and outs the York invasion. And she just gets disappeared and no one believes her. Mm -hmm. I mean, I believe that. I mean, yeah. Can I be honest now? I feel like it wouldn't take place in California. I feel like it would take place in Florida. Now I have to be honest because of the amount of, tourists that we have through here i mean that that's very believable i also the chance of just things happening and no one caring to pay attention to it i mean that's just it if you want plausible deniability you set it in florida because no one will think twice about half the exactly. stuff that happens yeah exactly exactly <laughs> um as a quick aside do you do you remember what the piece of alien technology in that area 42 was I don't, I barely, I can't, this is, I don't know why I barely remember that book. This is one of the all-time great bait-and-switch moments in this series, where it's like, here is a really high-stakes setup, and then just a comic relief answer. It was a toilet. It was an Andalite toilet. <laughs> I, I'm mad I don't remember. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, like, that's indicative of, like, a lot of, a lot of the earth, a the structure of a lot of the early books right like mm -hmm. here is what is potentially a huge like here is potentially a huge game-changing advantage in our fight against fascism that will turn it around overnight oh that doesn't exist huh uh, uh well alex as we move towards the end what are like because everybody is still looking for things that make them feel particularly nostalgic it's why the show exists what would you say to people who maybe read this and haven't thought about it in years or remember it but didn't take in what would you say to kind of get those people to go re revisit this now i mean if the pitch is what's going to be the quick hook i would say pick up 
I'd almost say pick up one of the Chronicles books or even one of the Megamorphs first. You're you're going to be confused about some things. Although these were books written for children, they do a good job of recapping and giving you what you need to get through. Um, Andalite Chronicles, Hork-Bajir Chronicles. If you like your weird sci-fi, Elamist is a pretty good read, but bear in mind that one's very late series and... Mm uh is not going to necessarily hit in the same way it would with context the only one i'd say don't start with is visser not because it's bad but because it's like a courtroom drama going from the second to the third act of the series Mm -hmm. um that one just don't read it out of order um the megamorphs books like i said kind of your big dumb summer blockbuster popcorn fun I think in general, though, like if this is something that you remember fondly and you're worried to revisit it because you don't think it will hold up, there is a reason that you cannot throw a cat on a disc, not a Discord server, on a podcast platform without hitting an Animorphs podcast at this point. It's true. It's true. There are so many. I, and it's it's gotten to the point where most of us who have had Animorphs podcasts and run out of books have like dabbled with. I know of two of them, and that's not a lot, but it's weird that it's happened twice. I'm one of them. People who have tried to turn around and homebrew Animorphs tabletop rules to then turn around and do Animorphs D&D, essentially, just to keep talking about it. There's a reason why this has come back and is persisting. Mm -hmm. Are they the deepest reads in the world? No. But they are, like, shockingly good for what they are. And they are more timely than I wish they were. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I agree 100%. And now, again, because I, uh, I... Not everybody knows this yet, but I will have a job where I will need things that are downloaded to consume. And I feel like I'm going to go and just get all the ebook versions of this series to read back through over the next year i've only dabbled with the audiobooks because they started coming out as i was finishing my reread Mm -hmm. but the ones i've heard are well done that's good that's good yeah that's good well alex thank you so much for being on the show with me i appreciate it of course thank you for for having me i've missed getting to podcast about animorphs Uh, i can imagine i have had so much fun listening back through that with you all so Tell everyone where they can find all of your podcasts on the internet space. Um, the easiest way is to find me at Alex Lavelle 2005 on Twitter and then just click my profile. There are links to the Twitter handles in my bio. Like I said, mine's at York. We put out an episode like once every six months because... We ran out of books and we ran out of parody books and decided we didn't hate ourselves enough to keep reading all of the parody books. Some of them are bad. Mm -hmm. We did a season of the TV show and kind of felt like we were saying a lot of the same things. So we didn't do season two. We reserved the right to come back. Now it's just kind of whenever there's something Animorphs adjacent that tickles our fancy, we're like, let's record an episode. Which you all just did at Camp Nowhere we uh, did yeah. uh yep secrets of camp nowhere which is the other book that chris grine is doing right now every six months he puts out a camp nowhere 
then six months Animorphs, then six months Captain Nowhere, etc. Uh, the third one, the second one just came out, the third one will come out, then he's two Animorphs a year until he's like 60. Um, panelology. All cards on the table were past the deadline I had set for myself to bring it back. Uh, it went on hiatus at the beginning of the year. It's about weekly comic releases, so it's not exactly the kind of thing where I can say, hey, go deep dive into old episodes. Um, but it's there. Rob Thomas, no, not that one. Rob Cast, also on on certain point of view. Have we released an episode in a long time? Nope. Will it happen anytime soon? Also, probably not, but never say never, right? If Veronica Mars can come back after, what, 15 years? So can we. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Once Upon a Monster of the Week, uh, I think is also in my bio. I think I added it since I added it. Uh, go listen to that one. That's the one I'm going to throw my sway behind right here because it is just so much fun. We are in the monster. We are in the monster of the week system, telling multiple multiple stories in the same town, overlapping cast members or dropping in on different groups show different groups episodes. Just sort of a shared world building D&D, not D&D, but tabletop uh, narrative experience. It's We edit out a lot of the table talk. We want them to flow like audiobooks, but with that kind of like energy of a tabletop game. They're all improvised in the same way tabletop would be. Um, comes out every other week. It's a lot of fun. That's 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 my main project right now. Are you really sure I really have to do this? Fine. If you're like me, you drive wherever you damn well please. And if you're like me, you've had your vehicle hidden away by a self-appointed authoritarian mystery local government. And if you're like me, you're required to attend a bullshit eight-week driving course to learn what you already know. But if you're like me, you don't have time for petty, redundant classes because you have a life. Go figure. So you agree to give an ad read for them to knock off four of those weeks because I need my damn Vespa back. Reddington's driver education. Here for you whether or not you asked. Alright, that's what we agree to, right? Once Upon a Monster of the Week is part of Haunted Griffin Entertainment. Please check out our website for more of our shows. Did you know Rob Thomas has been writing since the mid-90s? The Matchbox 20 guy? No, the guy behind Veronica Mars. Oh, and iZombie. And Cupid, Party Down, the Cupid reboot. I haven't seen those. Me neither, but we should watch them and then talk about them on our podcast. Yes, we could call it the Rob Thomas. No, not that one. Robcast. Every other Tuesday with Alex and MJ. Find us at notthatrobcast.libsyn.com or wherever you download podcasts. Saturday Morning Confidential is brought to you by Dreamer Productions and is a proud member of the Certain POV Podcast Network. You can find us on Facebook at Saturday Morning Confidential, on Instagram at SMC Pod, and on Twitter at The SMC Podcast. 
You can find all the shows that Certain POV has to offer at CertainPOV.com. We're also on Patreon at Dreamer Productions, where your donation of only $2 a month keeps constant programming coming in and supporting our new shows as we go throughout 2022. Now join us again next time for another deep dive into the files of Saturday Morning Confidential. CPOV. CertainPOV.com.